Didn't catch it to build power for substituting last week. Um, I think most of you know I ended up, I was exposed to COVID, didn't catch it then, then was exposed while I was isolated because that's what children do for you. Um, and then I got it. And so now we are better and we are all good and I'm glad to be back with you. We are technically in week three of the schedule that you all received and I'm gonna try to catch up. Actually, next week's lesson is kind of a lot of just stuff and the specifics aren't as important. And so I think what's gonna end up happening next week is that I'm going to do most of what was scheduled this week and next week, next week. And so today I'm actually going to try and do what was scheduled for the first two weeks today. So kind of chapters 19 through 24, we're gonna kind of try and race through all of that stuff. And so we've got four sections in today's lesson. The first is kind of review chapter 19, and then we're going to go through the rules and some of the details of the next few chapters. We've got section two is gonna be community rules. Section three is getting to the promised land, kind of the promise of the promised land. And then section four is Moses going up on the mountain. And so those will be the four sections of today's study. Chapters 19 through 24 is pretty much what we're gonna do. So I will make note as we read where we are in all of those chapters. So let's, just a reminder that I do like questions. Remember, I like them. And so here in person, online, if you're watching on a social media platform, do please ask questions. Bub is monitoring those comment threads so that she can let us know the questions that you have online if you cannot be with us today. And we, I just confirmed last week that we are going to finish backloading all of the RBS lessons that began in 2017. And so as you know, we did Luke and then Acts, then Genesis and Revelation. And I did not realize until someone wrote to me a week ago that we hadn't gotten we hadn't finished all of the Acts lessons and the Luke lessons were still outstanding on the actual podcast. And so they will all be loaded in the next couple weeks. Um, and so if you have not, if you want to go back and do those again, they're going to be nice and easily accessible. Um, and just for those of you who may not have been with us for the last few years, we didn't start doing videos until the pandemic. And so anything before March of 2020 is only audio and not video as well. But since March of 2020, we've got all the videos as well. So lots of ways that you can do Bible study as we continue on in this lovely pandemic. So let's say a prayer and we'll get rolling. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for this day. Give you thanks for giving us the ability to be together, either physically or digitally, that we can have time where we can focus on the work that you have done over time. We ask that you put your hand upon us. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to become the people you made us to be, that we can be transformed and by so being transformed by your love, we can reach out in love to all those we meet here in this community and beyond. Bless all of our friends who need your healing touch today, those who are ill, those who are in treatment, and help us to remember those we love and see no longer, that they rest in glory with you. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, gang, like I said, we're going to start with reviewing chapter 19. And so flip on back. Well, actually, I'm going to do <laughs> just a moment of chapter 17. Um, because we skipped. The last lesson we had was chapter 16, and we kind of skipped over, and I was intended to go right into the Ten Commandments, but there's this fun little section that I didn't want you to miss entirely. And so chapter 17 is this middle place between going through the Red Sea and getting to Mount Sinai. So obviously everything that we have done so far this school year is releasing the Israelites from Egypt, they get out of Egypt, they go away from Pharaoh, Pharaoh chases them, they get through the Red Sea, they have a celebration, and then essentially they've got to go from the Red Sea over to Mount Sinai. I don't have a map, I'm not going to draw a map this morning, but if you remember, the Sinai Peninsula looks like an upside-down triangle. Well, I guess 
if a triangle can be right side up, whatever. Um, so it looks, Sinai looks like a triangle. And essentially, the Israelites crossed the Red Sea or the Reed Sea at the very northern tip. Remember when they got to that city in Egypt that was essentially kind of the border town for incorporated Egypt? They crossed that city, they went over the Red Sea, and now they just had to get through the Sinai Peninsula to actual Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is, geographically speaking, um, part of a mountain range, but it still is almost one of those single mountains that rises up out of the ground. Um, I remember growing up, we would go to the mountains, and that always meant the Appalachian Mountains, like Western North Carolina and places like that, where you don't necessarily see the mountains. You kind of gradually go up in altitude, and then you're just in them. Versus if you go west, and you know, as you approach the Rocky Mountains from the west, you're driving on flat land for a long time, and you see them coming for a long time. Mount Sinai is a bit more like it has flat area around it, and the mountain kind of rises right up out of the ground. And so the people had to get through what was basically the wilderness, the desert area of the Sinai Peninsula to get to Mount Sinai. So there's this one moment where they're in conflict between the Red Sea and Mount Sinai. So if you look at chapter 17, verses 11, starting at verse 11, Israel has been attacked by the Amalekites. Moses sends Joshua to lead a group of people to fight against the Amalekites. And in order for the Israelites to be blessed in battle and win, Moses goes up on a hill and has to raise his arms. And so this is the scene. Joshua is leading the Israelites. They're fighting the Amalekites. And Moses has to keep his arms elevated. And if his arms come down, the Israelites start to lose. And if his arms go back up, they start to win. So let's look at chapter 17, verse 11. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the sun set, and Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the sword. I find that to be just one of those little nuggets of the story that I don't want you to miss. It's goofy. I mean, if we're honest. Here Moses helps the Israelites win by keeping his arms up. And if you've ever just held your arms up, you get tired. And so literally Moses, they bring him a stone so he can sit and he can't hold his arms up anymore. So Aaron and Hur actually hold his arms up for him in order for them to win the battle. I think that's great. And so anyway, that's my little note for you in chapter 17. Now let's get on to chapter 19. So the Israelites reach Mount Sinai, and essentially at Mount Sinai, here is the big, big idea of this moment. The big idea of this moment at Mount Sinai is the Israelites begin a journey that will make them Jewish. I said this months and months ago, but I'm just going to, I want this to be very, very clear to us. Until this moment at Mount Sinai, the Israelite people are not Jewish. It is the experience that they have here at Mount Sinai where they receive the law and they create a system, a social order that creates boundaries around who they are and who they will be. That is when they actually begin to become Jewish. Does that make sense? So people, the reason I've been talking about the Israelites and not the Jews, they're not Jewish yet. And it is here where they begin that journey. Now, what we think of as being Jewish is something that will take centuries to develop. Very similarly to what we might say as being Christian. If we were to all have a little conversation about what it means to be Christian, 
we will likely land on a few specific ideas. The Trinity, right? We kind of understand Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We've got ideas that are kind of based on the creed. We've got a little bit of tradition around the way that we structure ourselves. Much of what we define as Christian took minimum 500 years to develop, if not really a thousand plus years, because we as reformed Christians, as Anglican Christians, that's 1500 years in the making. And so we understand what it's like for a religious identity and a people to evolve. This is the point at which the group of people who are essentially a racial tribal group become a religious group. But as you know, being Jewish can mean both. So you probably know plenty of people who are Jewish because of their cultural identity, but really are not religiously Jewish at all. And I certainly know Jews who are actually Christian, but they would tell you they're Jewish, but they're Christian. And so there's a, there's a way in which being Jewish means could mean two different things. It's either cultural or religious or both. There are a few groups around the world where that is the case. Hindu is another good example of a person can be Hindu, which means they're just they're culturally uh, rooted in the Indian nation, or they can be Hindu because they are religiously affiliated with that group of people, or both. And so there are a few groups like that, and Jews happen to be one of them. So this is the point at which big, big macro idea over the next few weeks as we develop what happens at Mount Sinai, this is the point at which people actually are becoming the Jewish people. Okay. What does the word Jew mean? I have no idea. I do not. Um, <laughs> I love that question. I have never in my life asked what Jewish means. I'm going to guess it probably means something to do with like the people of the book or the people of the law, but I don't know that. I will look that up. Good question. Thank you. Any other questions just about that big macro idea? Okay. Chapter 19, verse 16. Chapter 19, verse 16. We are there on the, at the mountain. And at this section of the story, the people are not allowed to go on the mountain. Like nobody's going on the mountain except Moses. Chapter 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, as well as a thick cloud on the mountain and a blast of a trumpet so loud that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Okay, right here, the people are gathered, if you think, at the valley, down around the foot of this mountain that just is coming right up out of the ground. They've camped. I mean, they're still people, right? So they walk and then they camp and they walk and they camp. And so essentially they have camped here at the mountain. And remember how many people came out of Egypt? Remember we read it was 600,000 people came out of Egypt. And that could be any number of things. That could be total people. That could be the men, which means it could be a lot more than that. We're not really sure. It could also be less than that, and that could just be a big number. But one way or the other, this is not a small group of people. This is a huge group of people. And they are essentially creating little camps. They're like nomads. They pick up and they move, and they pick up and they move. And so essentially, they have made camp here at the mountain. So when they say Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, in a sense, they're literally walking from their tents all together to the mountain, and they're looking up at this mountain. And we see that there is thunder and lightning and a thick cloud around the mountain and the blast of a trumpet that scared them all to trembling. So God's there. I mean, this is like a movie moment. Can you see the special effects around this mountain? The swirl of the clouds? Y'all remember that scene from Ghostbusters? where like the clouds came down around the building. I mean, that's sort of what I see in my mind is it almost looks like a half 
of a tornado that sort of comes and starts circling around the mountain. You see the lightning and you hear the trumpet and it's dramatic. And Moses is essentially saying, here he is. God is here on this mountain. Another big idea that we will get to over the next few years, it is understood by the Jewish people that God is physically present in a spot on earth. And so when we are here at the mountain, God is physically present on this mountain. We need to separate the ideas that we have about God kind of being everywhere. Where is God? You know, every six-year-old can say, in my heart, this is not that. This is God is on the mountain. God's not in your heart. God is there in the thunder and the lightning and the clouds. Once the people receive God's law, God begins to go with them. The whole idea of the tablets, of the commandments, building the ark, we're going to get to that in the next few weeks. When the ark is built, the ark is placed in a tent, and then the pillar of cloud comes into the tent. That is where God is. God literally goes from the mountain to be then with the people. And then what we will see next year when we start looking at David is David's the one that brings the ark into Jerusalem. His son Solomon builds the temple, and that is where God is. God is in the temple. So that when the people go into exile and the temple is destroyed, it is a crisis moment. Because where is God now? God has been with them from this moment on. So they're looking up at the mountain, God's there in all the noise, and then with the reception of the law and their promise to follow God, God then now goes with them. And then God's with them for generations and generations until he's not, and they're in exile. Does that make sense? Okay. Now we just got to look at the Ten Commandments because I, I am not doing you any service if we don't at least talk about the Ten Commandments for a minute. Exodus chapter 20, we're not going to read it, but we get an order of the commandments here that is one list of commandments, not the only list of commandments. If you've ever studied the Old Testament, you know there are multiple lists of commandments. They're in slightly different orders. Some of them are not exactly the same. And so it depends on which list you look at. But here's the first one we come across. Exodus chapter 20, we essentially get these as the commandments. You shall have no other gods but me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord God in vain. Okay, those first three are about our relationship to God. The next seven is about the way we actually function. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet. There are the ten. That's the list of the ten from Exodus 20. It is pretty clear that this is not an exhaustive list of rules for humanity writ large. It's a decent starting place. In a sense, we've been given basic social construct, basic boundaries around who we shall be and who we shall not be. That being said, any of us who know anything about Judaism know that the Jewish tradition is filled with laws. There are tons and tons and tons of rules about what you can and cannot do. The Jewish people took this basic idea and then began to fill it out with a lot of complexity. And the intention behind that filling out is very good. Okay. So, you shall not murder. Here's a very complex one. What does that mean? Now, you, if any of you grew up in a Protestant tradition, Baptist or Methodist or whatever, you probably learned you shall not kill. That's a different list. <laughs> there are two different words used here. In one list, it really is kill. And in one list, it really is murder. Now, that's very different. Because murder implies something very specific. I mean, we, we call a murder something that is violent, 
something that is premeditated, likely. I mean, that is, it's a person to a person. Killing is very broad. In, huh, in our Western history, people have taken that one idea and parsed it out in so many different ways to essentially defend whether or not wars can happen. Because if someone, if the real rule is you cannot kill, then you cannot. But if it's you cannot murder, well then, is there a justification for war sometimes? Sure there is. And so, depending on how you tweak those words, which list you use, and whether or not you take it literally, you can actually do a lot in the world that may on the surface seem like you're going against the commandment, but the complexity built around the idea means actually going against the commandment would be these things, not going against the commandment would be these other things. That happens with all of these rules. And so, like any good legal tradition, the Jewish people have created complexity around these basic boundaries in remarkable ways. That is actually what ends up happening with Jesus when Jesus comes and begins to teach. Jesus teaches very simply. And he kind of goes back to basics, in a sense. We know the story of the Jewish leader who says, hey, what's the best commandment? Because they're trying to trap Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. First three commandments, love God. Next seven commandments, love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. He just summarized everything. We do not like that because it is too simple. And if it's too simple, we have to actually do it. And so instead, we make it super complex so we can still kind of do the things we want to do and not feel bad about not following what God's telling us. Right? We know how that works. And so this is one of those moments where the commandments seem pretty simple, but then they get a lot more complex, and we'll see that as we go through the next few chapters. Okay, that is my catch-up from basically chapter 17 to 19. Any questions or thoughts about those ideas before we get into some more specific legal structure? Nope. I see a few of your wheels turning. Okay. Yes, ma'am. God, yes, God. Yahweh. Uh huh. Okay. Well, but they thought that physically he was up there on the top of the mountain. Or, you know. And how can they put him in the ark if they carry in a box? Okay. So if God is up on the mountain and then begins to travel with the people, how do they put God in a box? Yeah. So I don't think any of the Israelites consider God as some physical being like that. Okay. It's much more the spirit. And so now, it's where God physically hits the ground, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, don't try to make this make too much sense. Um, it is the more specific we wish it to be, the less sensible it will, it will be. Um, God, in a sense, the way I think of it and the way that it is articulated in these books is it's almost as if God like, has a finger that comes down and touches the earth in some way, or God is um, like a pillar. Do you know what I think of when I think of this? Do you remember, have we all seen the Harry Potter movies? Yeah. I mean, most of us. There is a, remember the Death Eaters, the way they used to travel in a, like a pillar of smoke? 
and they would kind of like slice through the air and they would like the smoke would hit the ground and all of a sudden the person would be there again. I kind of imagine God's spirit being like a stream of smoke. And so you have this sort of, it touches the mountain. And then once God isn't there anymore, it touches the ark in the temple. Because what you will actually see as we go forward is whenever, when the ark is built and everything is put together properly, there is a literal tent in which the ark sits. And there is a physical touching of something from the sky that touches the tent in that holy of holies. And then God is present there. So it's not that God is the stone or God is the ark or God is somehow contained. It's more so that the mountain is the place where God touches the ground until it becomes the ark. Then the ark is the place that God touches the ground. It's a spiritual presence in that place. Now we as liturgical Christians we get this because where is God physically present for us? In communion. So we understand the concept of God's, we call it real presence, that we believe that God is really present in the bread and the wine. When we all gather together and we pray in a certain way and we all believe together, God's presence is somehow more real there than in other things. Now, is God present other place? Of course. But there is, what a sacrament actually is, is a way in which Christians over time have said, if that kind of thing happens, we are confident God is really present among. There are certainly examples of what people can do that are bad or wicked or misguided or you name it, and we can say God's not present in that. And it's a sliding scale. And so on the, on the opposite end is essentially what we call sacraments, where when we get together and we pray in a certain way and the belief is there, we are, we are confident. It's like we are now at 100% confidence God is present. And then there's a whole lot of other things in between. We're like, meh, you know, we, we go out and we look at a beautiful sky or we see, you know, a little baby duck playing in the lake or something like that. We're probably like 70% confident God's there, you know, because that's real sweet. But we can say we're 100% confident that God is actually present in the Eucharist. That's very similar to the kind of presence spiritually that I'm talking about on the mountain, in the ark, in the temple. Part of what shifts with Christianity is the sense that God is present in a place. And instead, God is now present with us, which is one of the reasons why Christians tend not to really commit to needing a place. When we think about Jerusalem, and the conflict that goes on in Jerusalem, that's kind of why Christians aren't in it. I mean, we like Jerusalem, it's nice, we're gonna go visit, it's a good place to be, and we can walk around and say, Jesus walked here. But like, if really someone said to us, you can never go to Jerusalem, okay. I mean, that's a bummer, but can we not actually be faithful people without going to Jerusalem? Of course not, of course, we're fine to never go to Jerusalem and we're good. It's different for Jews and Muslims. Place matters a lot more because of just simply the way that, we un that God's presence is understood in other traditions versus Christianity. So we have to un acknowledge, I think, that for us, in the best sense, places don't matter as much. We know we love places like our church building, but if this church building vanished, could we gather and still be the church? Of course we could. We'd be sad. We don't want to lose it if we don't have to lose it. But we are, we, I hope, are quite clear that we can be faithful people and be with God wherever we are. It does not matter where the place is. Another way of thinking about this is God is omnipresent. We're not 
It's like a Venn diagram. You know, everything is always present with God, but we're not always quite there. Yes. Um, it's, <laughs> it's good to think about, but I do want to caution needing to really nail it down in black and white, because especially for us as Anglican Christians, Episcopalians, we are very much a people of mystery. And so we can get close, but we are fundamentally, theologically, we are very comfortable with mystery um, of saying, what really happens in the bread and the wine? Nah, we don't do that. Um, so the whole Aristotelian idea of transubstantiation, I don't know if you all are familiar with this, but the Roman Catholic idea of transubstantiation is based on an Aristotelian idea of form and substance. And if you remember back to when you read Aristotle, if you did ever, um, there, is, <clears throat> there is this interesting conversation that he has about form and substance of a chair. Here's a chair. It looks like a chair. It may actually be a chair, but it can also look like a chair and not be a chair. Whatever. And so that idea was then taken and adopted by Roman Catholicism, and it became the philosophical foundation of transubstantiation, which says... You see bread and wine, but then when a proper prayer is done by a person who is blessed to do so, what you see as bread and wine is no longer bread and wine. It has actually changed its substance, even though its form has not changed. You know, okay. I mean, it's, that's fine. If that, if that matters to somebody, great. Um, but what Episcopalians basically said was, well, that kind of sounds like magic. And so let's not do that. But we still believe that coming together in a particular way is holy. And so then how do we describe bread and wine in a way that doesn't sound like magic? And so that's where we landed on what we've always sort of called real presence. Is God really present in that bread and wine when it is blessed? Yes. What does that actually mean? No, it's still bread and wine. We are not having some weird anti-scientific thing happen here. But for a believer, there is a deep feeding that comes with sharing the Eucharist. When we, in our belief receive bread and wine that has been blessed, it is feeding us with the genuine presence of God in our bodies, which is one of the reasons why for us, communion can be open because what harm will it do? Whereas in other traditions like Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic, there's, you don't get it. You cannot take communion if you're not like all in on what is actually happening with these items. I like our way better. Okay. I see my okay.
Yes. So context absolutely matters. And it is very easy for us to understand why some of these rules would be in place because there is a shift happening in understanding relationship with God that is very, that is intentionally meant to be different than what is going on around them. And so I, I think you're right. We, keeping in mind that what is happening here, and it's a good segue because that's what the next few chapters are about, being different than the other groups of people around you becomes a hallmark of being Jewish. And so the Israelites have, in a sense, received this promise from God. Their chosenness takes shape as being different and marked differently than all the other groups of people around them. Now, over time, that can actually become a hindrance because part of what we see with Jesus is kind of um, naming that being different has now gone a bit too far. Being different has now become being better than. And when one understands difference as being better than, then you can have a lot of problems. And so much of what Jesus teaches is acknowledging that, yes, the Jewish people are different, yes. But the difference is not necessarily better than it is meant to be an invitation into something for everyone and to acknowledge that different groups did different things in different ways. And that's simply not what God is calling us into. There is a misunderstanding of the spiritual that is happening all around us. And it's our job then as chosen to help clarify and bring people closer to God through that clarity. And so let's look it's a good segue into the next section, which is really about community rules. And so chapters 20 through 22 address a whole set of rules that are absolutely not exhaustive, but have some odd specificity. <laughs> and so I do want to step through them relatively quickly. What? 11, 10 already? Okay. Um, and so we're going to do it faster um, so we can actually get through this. So uh, Israel has been in Egypt for 400 years. The Israelites have, in a sense, had no cultural or communal autonomy. They've essentially just been living underneath the rules, the umbrella of Egyptian society. So now they have left Egypt. They're here at the mountain. And so culturally speaking, what is important for us to note is that they're now trying to figure out, now who will we be? How will we live? How will we structure ourselves? What are the boundaries we put around our social order? Because now for the first time in anyone's memory, I'm centuries, they get a chance to say who they want to be. More or less what happens in the next few chapters is an articulation of some of the fundamental ways of being, how they're going to treat each other, how they're going to structure their social order, how they're going to resolve conflict, seek justice, and on and on and on. I'm going to try to run through this pretty quickly because it's mostly sensible stuff. I mean, I think if you were to read these next few chapters, you would say, yeah, that sounds good. I do want to note, and I'll say it more specifically as we go. There will be some moments where we think, yeah, that's not, that's not quite good enough. It was actually really good thousands of years ago. So we have to kind of take off our 21st century modern American hat and say where they were at that time and in that place, some of the social structures that they established actually kind of decent. It is an improvement on other things going on around them. Perfect? No. Good enough? Not at all. But better? Yes. And it's the being better that is important for us, I think, to note as we run through this. Okay. We start off with worship. So in chapter 19, the very end, follow if you want, or you can just listen. Chapter 19, verse 23. This is all stuff coming from God through Moses. 
You shall not make gods of silver alongside me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. You need make for me only an altar of earth and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your offerings of well-being, your sheep and your oxen and every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. We begin these rules and these structures with worship. So it is very clear, step one, identity, the basic anchor of identity is worship of Yahweh. So we are understanding, number one, that we are to be people of worship. And so that kind of identity is absolutely critical. Without that, the rest of the stuff is only just nice. Second, we hear about servants. Chapter 20, verse 2. I'm not going to read as much as I thought I was going to read. Let's just read a few verses. When you buy a male Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. But in the seventh, he shall go out a free person without debt. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife of her children shall be her master's and he shall go out alone. But if the slave declares, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out a free person, then his master shall bring him before God. He shall be brought to the door or to the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him for life. Now, let's pause there. So that's a whole bunch of like, that's really specific. And what I want us to understand is that first off, what is translated in English as slave is it's not doing us any favors. The word really should be servant. We should take away the word slave and replace it with servant because that actually gets at the spirit of what we're talking about here more than slave. For us, we, we cannot, we as American, well, we as modern people, but especially as Americans, cannot hear the word slave without being impacted by the last 400 years. I mean, it just, it, it's different. And so I think rather than trying to explain this or that, replace slave with servant. And what is interesting about this is that being a servant in a household is actually an opportunity of sorts. So look at what it says right here. When you, when you buy a male Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, but in the seventh he shall go out a free person without debt. So what does that really mean? What is actually being defined here is a way for a person to, in a sense, get out of the hole of debt. That could happen in any number of ways. But if a person has debt of any kind, a business failed, a natural disaster, a tragedy, a health problem, you name it, a way to get out of debt is to actually go as a servant to someone else and essentially work it off. And when you've worked it off, you're done. That's not bad. Think back to the story of Jacob. How did Jacob get his two wives? Jacob went and served Laban. He served Laban for a set number of years in order to marry Rachel, well, that didn't quite work. He married Leah first, then he had to work again in order to marry Rachel, but whatever. Same idea, where essentially you can go and work to earn. There's a description here that makes it seem like you come out of debt. But there's also a lot of evidence that serving a household helps you get ahead as well. So it could bring you out of debt. It could also just get you ahead. You might think of this, this is not exactly right, but it's almost as if you're apprenticing. So if you think about a young person who at 16 needs to kind of set themselves up, you go and you work for six years and you kind of get ahead, well, that's actually kind of decent. We do that a lot in our culture. Many people who join the military are actually doing that because it's a decent opportunity to essentially establish their adult lives in a really good way. Is it forever in a career? Maybe. For most, no. For most, it's just a really great foundation. And then from there, they go on. What is interesting about this section 
is if a slave declares, I love my master, and then chooses to serve that person for life, it is, if that's even a possibility, then servanthood is actually a pretty decent experience. Slavery is not a choice. Servanthood apparently can be. And if there's an option for servanthood to be something someone wants to do for the rest of their life, then it has to, at some way, be pretty fair. You know, someone is cared for well. Housing and food and security and you name it. We know that some of the people who, the names we know, Jacob is one of them, um, Jethro is another one. These people that come out in scripture are often heads of households. And so when we talk about head of a household, that person could have 100 people in their household. That's not just a spouse and some children. That's whole families of people who serve that household. And so we're defining that in a way that is relatively respectful, in a way that would not be the case outside of these traditions. Again, is it good enough? No. But is it actually pretty decent for the time? Yes. Okay, any questions or thoughts on that? I could talk about that for like a half hour. Okay, let's keep going. Next is violence. Chapter 21, verse 12. Whoever strikes a person mortally shall be put to death. If it was not premeditated, but came about by an act of God, then I will appoint for you a place to which the killer may flee. But if someone willfully attacks and kills another by treachery, you shall take the killer from my altar for execution. Okay, then if you jump to like verse 22, when people who are fighting injure a pregnant woman so that there is a miscarriage and yet no further harm follows, the one responsible shall be fined what the woman's husband demands, paying as much as the judges determine. If any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, blah, 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 blah. So this idea of an eye for an eye, that phrase that we know, right here. It may sound like a horrible idea, but actually what is happening in this section is there is a limit to the amount a person must pay to seek justification. That's very interesting because back at this point in time, and gosh, I mean, through most of human history, if someone is wronged, then retribution can be whatever they feel like. If you kill some, I mean, I, I think of like mob movies or something like that, where you know somebody gets killed and then they go and kill the entire family in retribution. That's extreme, it's too much. What is happening here is actually a very thoughtful, intentional balancing. If something bad happens, an equally bad thing should happen to the person who did the wrong. So it is meant to be equal. So the equality piece is what is very interesting about this section. It's, it's oddly specific about a few ideas, but the fundamental idea is the same here, which is if something bad happens, seeking justice for that bad that is equal is okay but you cannot go seeking justice or retribution that is above and beyond the original wrong. All right, sorry, I don't have time for more than that. Any questions? <laughs> okay, then we get to property and restitution. I'm not gonna read anything in here, just it's more of equality, more of that just balancing Something bad happens, you need to be able to right that wrong with something equal. Then we get to social and religious justice. So this section is less cohesive, which is funny because the others are not super cohesive. Um, but this is even a bit more random with just its lists of things that are can do and can't do and that sort of stuff. Um, what is interesting about the way that laws are established in these chapters, there's not a lot of attention paid to the right way to do a thing. Instead, 
most of the energy and effort and words are actually about how to justify or find um, balance based on the wrong things that happen. And so what's interesting is that there is a clear implication that the right way of living must have been assumed. Like everyone just kind of lived the same way. And so the attention paid here is about what to do when people don't do the right thing, rather than setting up a whole long list of what the right thing actually is. For example, chapter 22, verse 16. Yep, 22.16. When a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to be married and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. But if her father refuses to give her to him, he shall pay an amount equal to the bride price for virgins. Then as if it makes sense, the next verse says, you shall not permit a female sorcerer to live. What? So it is just very random, um, just a little list, verse by verse, of just odd things. Um, I mean, the next verse, after clarifying that female sorcerers should not be allowed to live, the next verse says, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. I mean, it's just like anything off the top of your head we're just going to list here. Um, so I'm going to step back real quickly. The First couple verses, 16 and 17. This, to a modern eye, is not, is not good. But I want you to, just, just bear with me, I want you to put yourself in the position of an ancient people's and to then see that what is actually being said in these two verses provides women some level of security that would have been exceptional at the time. If a man seduces a virgin who's not engaged to be married and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. Now, not a one of us in this room is going to say if a, let's just be honest, this is essentially saying if a man rapes a woman. Let's be honest, okay? This is not, seduces, that's very nice. It's not really what this means. This is not like buying a woman a nice dinner and then walking by the lake and looking at a meteor shower. That's not what's happening here. This is, this is not okay. But at the time, if a man violated a woman, that woman was done. She could not be married. She would never have had children. She would never have been in the household. She would have been essentially on the street homeless for good, period, the end. What's happening here is making men a little small, a little bit more responsible for their bad behavior. And so if a man hurts a woman in that way, he needs to be responsible for her. I said, this is not good enough, but it is an improvement on what the standard way of operating would have been in that time. And that is really the point for us to note that actually that rule creates a much higher level of accountability than would have existed otherwise. High enough? No. Better? Yes. Okay. Give me a break. Okay. I'm not going to catch up as much as I thought. Thoughts or questions up to that point? Sorry, that's a too little time spent on all those rules, but I really want to do the next thing. Yes, ma'am. Not to protect the woman, but the father. Um, I think your criticism is fair. It is to protect the entire family. But I don't think we can say it's not to protect the woman. Um, there, are, there are laws around marriage. You know the, the law, and Jesus deals with this, where if a, a woman's husband dies, then the woman's husband's brother is meant to take her as a wife. And that, like, Who wants that? 
I mean, who woman's like, yay, I get to marry my brother-in-law? No, that's not, that's not to, that's not to make her happy. It is meant to keep her safe. And it is unfortunate that at that time, safety, like staying alive was the good goal. It's a low bar, but is it better than the alternative? It's better. And so, yes, there, is, there are ripples to this. So if a, if a young woman is violated, then her family would also lose, y'all, I can't, I don't know how to say this other than it sounding ugly, but her family would then lose the opportunity to make money on her. I mean, that's it. I can't say it any other way. That's, that's just the way it worked. Um, and so, in a sense, she needs to be taken care of or you can kind of pay off the family. And so that's the alternative. So the man can take that woman as his wife and then take care of her, keep her safe, secure. Or if he doesn't want to, he at least has to pay for her. Well, I know it's not okay, but it's, it does raise the level of accountability and tries to take away kind of, you can do whatever you want to people who are in a weaker position. That's, that's a, a common theme among many of the rules that are established as the Jewish people begin to create their social structure is trying to protect those who are typically in a weaker position. It does not mean that those who are typically in a weaker position all of a sudden find equity. It's not that, but it's a gradual elevation and a bringing up and a shoring up some of the ways in which society can let people fall through the cracks. I mean, it's almost like a social safety net. I mean, it's, it's not really that um, in reality, but functionally speaking, there will be fewer people homeless and on the street and destitute and starving because of these rules. So that's better. Um, but yes, you're right. It's not only about the individual. It is, there are ripples for the family system as well. Okay, okay, hang in, I have three minutes. Um, look at chapter 23. Chapter 23, verse 20. I'm not going to finish this today, but I at least want to get it started. Coming to Sinai is important. Beginning a process of becoming the Jewish people is very important. But let's not bury the lead. The real point of all of this is to get back to the land. So God promised the land to Abraham way, way centuries earlier. Abraham knew he wasn't going to see it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, none of them saw it. 400 years there in Egypt. Now the people are out. And although Sinai is nice and the light show on the mountain is great and the Ten Commandments super, they have been promised land. And so what we get in chapter 23 is the beginning of the explanation of how that's going to happen. Okay, let's read for just a few verses. Chapter 23, verse 20. I, God, Yahweh, am going to send an angel in front of you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Be attentive to him and listen to his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Wow, that's foreshadowing. But if you listen attentively to his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. We'll pause there. The next few verses explain what that means. I will summarize. There are people living in the land. There are people in the land of Canaan already making it their home. And we know that as the story goes... The Israelites are going to be taken into that land, and the people who are currently living there will be put out of that land. Why? 
because God has passed judgment on those people. Why has God passed judgment on the people in the land of Canaan? That is a much more complicated idea that I will get to next week. For now, just know that after receiving some of these rules, there is a pivot. And what God is doing through Moses is saying, all right now, I've given you some boundaries, some social constructs. Now let's talk about where you'll actually live as my chosen people. People are already there, but I'm going to take you in and we're going to kick the people who are there out. And kicking them out is justified because of the way that they live. They live wickedly. We'll talk about that in a little more detail next week. But what is interesting is that the way in which those people live, that God passes judgment and kicks them out, is actually what the Jewish people, in retrospect, understand that they started doing before the exile. And so what is happening in the arc of this story is as the people are brought in to the promised land and those who are living there are kicked out or killed, there is a justification of that shift because the people who were there are living worse than the Jewish people. But it's not just the Jews are better. There is an articulation of the way in which the Canaanites are living badly that connects directly to the way that the Jews were living prior to the Babylonian exile. And what they're actually establishing is a loop in the story that explains why God would have let them go into exile in the first place and the mistakes they do not wish to make again, which is why they're telling the story in this way, to keep them from ever falling into that trap like they did before the exile. That's good stuff. All right, gang, I'm glad you're here, and I'll see you next week. Bye.